0: Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, where each episode explores how to integrate timeless wisdom into everyday life. We engage in meaningful conversations with leading thinkers in philosophy, leadership, theology, and everything in between. We leave no stone unturned, In Search of Wisdom. To learn more, visit perennialleader.com. Hello and welcome. As always, thank you for listening. On today's episode, my guest is Stephen Nadler, the author of Think Least of Death, Spinoza on How to Live and How to Die. Professor Nadler's research focuses on philosophy in the 17th century, and he's written extensively on Spinoza. In the conversation, Stephen and I discuss how to define wisdom The connection between wisdom and other virtues, the philosophy of Spinoza, how to think about death, living the good life, and much more. Please welcome the wise and gracious Stephen Nadler. Stephen Nadler welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. I'm excited to discuss a little bit about you and Spinoza as well. I guess to begin the conversation, I'm curious to know what led you to the profession of teaching and writing about philosophy.
1: It all began in my very first semester of college. Um, I went to school not having any idea what I was going to major in, And the first class in my first semester was a philosophy course taught by a professor who was just so energetic and so exciting and made everything seem so interesting that I said, that's what I want to do. And I never (laughs) looked back. Uh, And then I went on to graduate school and then ended up teaching here at Wisconsin. So after
0: all of these years of teaching and studying philosophy, how would you define wisdom today?
1: that's uh that's the perennial question, and we call ourselves philosophers, lovers of wisdom um and I think most philosophers have um relatively similar sense of what wisdom consists in we, you know we know it's not just a matter of knowing things it's not a matter of being well educated or well read um you know if you go way back uh i mean way way back to the uh point where um homer's uh events were taking place in the Iliad and the Odyssey, um, the notion of being wise had a very narrow meaning. It meant you had a particular skill. So one character in Homer's Iliad is called uh, Sophos, uh, wise, in the art of archery, because he's a really good archer. Uh, another is, in, if you read in Herodotus, in his history of the Persian Wars, he describes um, uh, a stable boy as Sophos, or wise, because he knows how to handle horses. Uh, And so for a long time, wisdom was just this very technical knowledge in a a narrow domain. Um, It really came to Socrates to transform our understanding of wisdom and make it not just a matter of having a a skill or a technical know-how, and it's not just a matter of being smart and knowing facts or having a long life of experience— But it's a matter primarily, and this was not just Socrates, but you find this throughout the Greek tragedies, it's a matter of knowing something about yourself. I always like to ask my students, is there anybody you think of as wise? And they have a hard time coming up with somebody who they think really qualifies to uh, earn that that really high Mm -hmm. honor. If you could
0: reflect back and think maybe when you were in that seat or maybe writing your dissertation how has your definition of of wisdom maybe changed over the years?
1: Uh, I think the more you read, and especially the more you read of philosophy, uh, the more you come to have a somewhat ecumenical sense of what wisdom consists in. Um, you know, there's this Socratic notion of wisdom. Um, there are various religious traditions which have their own understanding of what wisdom consists in, usually referring to. Uh, an understanding of one's relationship to a higher power um, and a kind of humility. Uh, the interesting, interesting thing about wisdom, and we get this in Plato especially, is that it's a, it's a kind of all-purpose virtue. Um, in a way, it sums up all the other virtues. If you are not wise, you can't really be courageous. You can't really be generous. You can't really um, be benevolent towards others. So, for example... Um, what is being generous? Except knowing how much to give, how much you can afford to give, and how much it's right to give. And there's a kind of wisdom involved in all these individual virtues of knowing what's proper. Um, and so you you read that in Plato. Um, Aristotle distinguishes practical wisdom from intellectual wisdom. Um, and the more you become, you know, the longer you, the more time you spend. Studying philosophy, I think you come to accept that there's not just a single kind of wisdom, but many different ways in which wisdom can manifest itself, both in particular ways as this or that virtue, or as a general kind of character, a person has the capacity, a wise person has the capacity to know what to do and how to act and what's appropriate in this or that situation. Um, And they're able to apply that... Uh, capacity in all different ways and especially in ways that they've never come across before so they have this kind of moral flexibility um, ability to size up the situation and know what's right
0: you've written extensively on Spinoza throughout your career do you recall when you first came across Spinoza and and maybe what it was uh, about him that really connected with you
1: I, yeah, actually, I can remember exactly yeah. when. Um, so I had you know, I'd written my uh, PhD dissertation on 17th century philosophy, concentrating on Descartes and uh, his philosophy. But eventually I wanted to write something that would get read by more than a dozen other specialists in the field. And this is especially after I had children and um, I received tenure at the university. And so I felt I had a kind, both a kind of freedom to now work on whatever I wanted to work on but also, with children, I felt if I was going to squirrel myself away and write something and you know take myself away from them, from playing with them or doing something with them, um, caring for them, it should be for something that really mattered. I wanted to continue to work in 17th century philosophy. Um, I also wanted to write something that would get read by a broad audience and not just fellow philosophers. Um, I also wanted to write on something that was a little closer to my own jewish Mm. heritage and spinoza seemed to fit all of those criteria Um, there's the whole jewish context of his life and education and his his excommunication Um, he's still a 17th century philosopher but there's also something fascinatingly mysterious difficult and engaging about spinoza partly because he's uh so difficult to understand and i found you know once you start working on spinoza you try endlessly to figure it out. And every time I read him, it gets more difficult. But the other attraction of Spinoza is that he's a rebel, he's a radical, um, and one who was punished by the community that raised him. And everybody loves a radical (laughs) hero, especially somebody who suffers at the hands of the authorities. And so all of this came together and made Spinoza sort of the natural next project for me to undertake, which is what I did when I wrote the Spinoza biography, thinking that that could reach a broader reading audience. And then, as I said, once Spinoza gets his hooks into you, that's it. Um, It's easy to become obsessed with Spinoza. Uh, The other reason, I think, is also that Spinoza essentially gets it all right. Um, I found that he spoke to me in a personal way, that um, I not only understood what he was saying about God and nature and the human being and a good life and morality, but I thought he got it right. Um, His views on religion, on politics... Um, on how to be a good person and how to achieve some kind of flourishing or happiness, um, it all makes a kind of sense. And even today, I think you'd be hard pressed to find somebody who would identify themselves as a Cartesian or a Leibnizian, or um, you know, one of any like a Cassandist. But Spinoza, I think, it's possible to um, you know be a modern day <laughs> citizen. And be a Spinozist to take him as your model for the way in which you think and act. Before we get too far into it, would you mind for someone
0: maybe not familiar with Spinoza, what's a brief kind of overview?
1: Um, so, his two main works one was called The Ethics, and the other was The Theological Political Treatise. Uh, in The Ethics, it's a very difficult work. He wrote both of these in Latin. And The Ethics is difficult because he presents his views, his metaphysical views, his views on knowledge, his views on human nature, and his views on moral philosophy in a geometric format with propositions and definitions and proofs. And it, It's a very forbidding format. But essentially, at least as I read him, Spinoza is saying that um, there is no such thing as a transcendent providential God. That's a very superstitious religious belief. All there is is nature, and everything that there is is in and determined by nature. Uh, Human beings are as much a part of nature as trees and giraffes. And everything in nature is governed by nature's inviolable deterministic laws. Everything happens with absolute necessity. Uh, There's no providence in nature, Uh, there's no God who does things for purposes everything follows from nature in a lawlike and necessary way and that applies as much to uh, events involving human beings there is no such thing as an absolutely free will our thoughts our desires our choices our volitions are all as much determined by causal factors as rocks rolling down hills or leaves falling off of trees so in the ethics he takes this picture of the human being in nature and shows how even so, it's possible for us to be more or less free, not in the sense of having an absolutely free will, but you are free to the extent that your life is governed not by irrational passions, which are the, way, the ways in which other things make you feel. But to the extent that you are guided in your actions by reason, by what you know, not by what you feel or what you imagine or what you sense, but by what you know. And the free, rational, and virtuous person is somebody who lives a life according to reason and who does the things that they don't just happen to feel good about, but the things that they know are truly good for them as human beings. And what's truly good for human being is the pursuit of knowledge. So that's the essential picture of the ethics. The Theological Political Treatise is where he takes on the question of what is the relationship, the proper relationship, between uh, religion and the state, church and state. And the Theological Political Treatise, in addition to relying on this deterministic picture of nature that he spells out in the ethics, um, where miracles are absolutely impossible, it's not just that, as some other philosophers had said in the period, um, we should always be skeptical when we hear a report about a miracle. Spinoza goes further than that. He says, no, miracles are absolutely impossible because nature produces things with absolute necessity. And if a miracle is understood to be an event contrary to nature's laws, well, nature can't contravene its own laws, so miracles are impossible. Uh, The Bible, he says in the Theological Political Treatise, is not some divinely given work. It's not written, authored, or dictated by God. The Bible is a work of human literature composed over many generations by a variety of authors working in different historical and political circumstances, eventually compiled selectively by editors in the Second Temple period. And so what we have now, uh, having been passed down generation from generation, is this anthology of human literature that's fairly corrupt because it's always been copied and recopied and recopied. And so we shouldn't regard the Bible as literally a divine work. Um, Rather, it's divine only in the sense that it contains a superbly edifying moral message, that is, love your fellow human beings and treat them with justice and charity. That's the only sense in which the Bible is divine. But then again, any work of literature that moves you to treat other human beings with justice and charity is also divine in that same sense. He then shows us that uh, true religion is simply the practice of justice and charity. It's got nothing to do with ceremonies or rituals or prayers. Um, That's all just superstitious uh, hooey. They organized religions build up in order to secure the, the credulity of ordinary people. True religion is just the practice of justice and charity. It's just being moral. And finally, in the Theological Political Treatise, and this, co- this book caused a huge scandal in the 17th century. It was regarded as an atheistic work uh, composed by the devil himself in hell. Um, and finally, he says that um, it's a real danger to the state when religious authorities exercise political control. That is, the the state, the the public or civic sphere, should be under the control of secular civic authorities. And they should control, in fact, the churches. That is, they should control ecclesiastic behavior to the extent that such behavior um, comes into the public realm, because it's the civic authorities who are responsible for maintaining peace, security, and order in the civic realm.
0: And he was excommunicated, it seemed like, if I remember correctly, at a fairly young age, what influenced this kind of conviction and courage, uh, you know, at such a young age to put out these these thoughts in, the, in that culture?
1: Yeah, that's the great question about Spinoza's biography. Where did it come from, um, the, these, these thoughts? Um, we know very little about his life as a young man. He was basically running his late father's importing business in the early 1650s, And then all of a sudden, there's this harsh harem, which is a kind of excommunication or ban or ostracism from the Amsterdam Portuguese Jewish community. Uh, And on the one hand, there's a great mystery around this harem, because the, the only extant document we have speaks of his abominable heresies and monstrous deeds, but doesn't tell us what they are. On the other hand, for anybody who reads Spinoza's mature treatises, there's really no question about what got him into trouble. If at the time of the ban, he was saying any of the kinds of things that appear in his treatises. Um, you're right that some of, the, some of his writings were not published until after his death, but he did publish in his lifetime, um, first in 1663, a, a summary of Descartes' philosophy in which he inserts some of his own views. But then the mm-hmm. theological-political treatise, um, which caused a humongous scandal, Um, He published that anonymously, uh, but while he was still alive, in 1670. And, you know, Mm -hmm. in in his works, we find just the kinds of things that no 17th century rabbi could possibly tolerate. uh, Denying the providential God, saying that the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, is just a work of human literature. It's not literally true. Uh, He denies that there is any meaningful metaphysical or moral sense in which the Jewish people are God's chosen people. Uh, I think perhaps the most aggravating factor is Spinoza denies the immortality of the soul. Uh, For Spinoza, when you're dead, you're dead. Um, And both the Portuguese Jewish community of Amsterdam and the Dutch Calvinist community of the city um, were very committed to a robust doctrine of personal immortality, that there is a world to come, uh, an afterlife in which the virtuous will be rewarded and the vicious will be punished. Spinoza rejects all of that as superstitious nonsense. Um, and we do have reasons for thinking that at least some of the views that we find in his mature treatises were things he was saying, uh, at least you know, person to person, uh, around the time of the harem. So yeah, I think there's a mystery, and yet it can't really be too mysterious. But that doesn't mean that scholars don't continue to debate, debate what exactly it was that got him excommunicated.
0: What philosophers or schools of thought do you think had the biggest influence on uh, his ideas?
1: So I I think it's um, the the, the beautiful thing about Spinoza is that in reading both the ethics and the theological political treatise, you see so many different strains of thought. Um, There's first of all, whatever he learned from his Jewish upbringing, uh, and not just reading uh, rabbinic texts and Torah Uh, and Talmud, but also uh, reading Jewish philosophers like Maimonides and Gersonides and Ibn Ezra. So there's the first of all, the Jewish intellectual tradition. And that's something that Spinoza had access to, unlike any other philosopher of the 17th century. And I think this in a way made him somewhat unique among the figures regarded as the major philosophers of the time. Uh, You could also, though, in reading Spinoza, you can't, fail to recognize the influence of Descartes, who is probably his most important philosophical mentor. A lot of the concepts and categories that you find in Spinoza are very Cartesian. Uh, at the same time, Spinoza rejects a lot of what Descartes has to say. Uh, then there's Thomas Hobbes, the, um, another radical philosopher, but of a de- very different sort, the English thinker Hobbes. Um, Spinoza's views on politics... On the state of nature uh, and even on the the emotions, I think, and what a human being is, were influenced by Hobbes. Uh, Then there's ancient Stoicism. Uh, We know from looking at we have the inventory of Spinoza's library from when he died, and we know he was well read in the ancient Stoics like Seneca and Epictetus, uh, and so and and Cicero. Uh, So I I think all of these strands come together, and um, you know there was back in the 1930s Harry Wolfson. Uh, just an astounding scholar. But I think he misunderstood Spinoza when he argued that Spinoza's philosophy is just a pastiche of all of these other philosophers. I I think you can't deny that Spinoza was deeply influenced by what he read in Jewish philosophy and in the ancient classics and Descartes and so on. But there's also an extraordinary originality there. He's not just repeating or cutting and pasting what he found in others. Um, I I would say, too, that another culprit in the formation of Spinoza has to be the city of Amsterdam itself. I mean, this is, I think, the most cosmopolitan um, liberal city in Europe at the time. And there were things being published in Amsterdam that wouldn't possibly get published elsewhere, uh, much to the annoyance of other countries. Amsterdam was really, as some recent authors called it, the bookshop of the world. Uh, But also it was... A city where strains of radical thinking, of religious dissidence, atheism, libertinism, um, all sorts of of intellectual deviance flourished in a really rich uh, intellectual and artistic culture.
0: You mentioned earlier it it being a difficult read. How was it received... um... In its day, was it a a difficult read then? And um, like, for example, the ethics—any insight of of how well that was received uh, as a publication?
1: Oh, it wasn't received well, but mainly because it was condemned by religious authorities. You don't—that's an interesting question. You don't get a lot of people describing how difficult it is to read, because they're so focused on insisting at how scandalous it is so they but you know when you see what they how they read it and this is even true in uh during spinoza's lifetime uh the manuscript of the work circulated among his friends and uh, also among others and we do know that there was a circle of his friends in amsterdam who were slowly working their way through the manuscript and they would write to him for clarification so they were obviously having some trouble uh reading it um <laughs> And you know, it's not a work to be undertaken by yourself. I think um, you really, you, you need to read it with others and compare notes and um, see how each of you is making sense of this or that proposition. And that's what his friends were doing in Amsterdam. Uh, we also have his correspondence with people like Henrik Oldenburg in London, who is the corresponding secretary of the Royal Society. And Oldenburg would write him, and it's clear that he was having trouble getting his head around what Spinoza was saying about God. And Spinoza actually had to say um, that the way to, to his correspondence. well, you know, the way I think about God is not the way you think about God. Let me, let me enlighten you, but he couldn't go too far. Uh, and so throughout his correspondence, you see him trying to explain his views to others. So I think people did wrestle quite difficultly with it at the time, but you know, once the ethics was published, most of the commentary on it was simply a condemnation uh not because it was a difficult text but because they didn't like what they thought he was saying
0: how does his view on god connect with you you mentioned the stoics the idea of living in accordance with nature Uh, i think of it it seems to connect with some of uh marcus aurelius's writing any connection there
1: yes i think a strong connection but there are important differences. Um, some of the Stoics, I think you know, there's great variety among the different Stoic philosophers. Some of them actually argue that we can uh, eliminate the passions or emotions, or at least thoroughly control them by kind of act of will. Spinoza did not think that was possible. Um, the, the most we could do was try to mitigate the power of the emotions and live according to reason. But I think the more important difference between Spinoza and some of the ancient Stoics is that um, so this notion of living according to nature is ambiguous. Well, what do you mean? Uh, one possible understanding of what it means to live according to nature is that you just take it as it comes. Whatever nature throws at you, you just accept and you don't fight it. Another possible meaning of it is live according to human nature. That is, do what humans should do. Uh, live according to what your human nature moves you to do. So, there, living according to nature means living according to human nature. But some of the Stoics believe that nature, in fact, was not this blind, random force throwing things at you in unpredictable ways, but that it was informed by what they called the logos uh, or Zeus. Zeus. Um, that there's a kind of providential god. Uh, god. Uh, a kind of providential, um, way of nature, um, as dictated by God or the gods. And that's something that's absolutely foreign from Descartes, uh, from, sorry, from Spinoza's philosophy. Um, there is no providence in nature. So I think that's an important, uh, distinction between Spinoza and the ancient Stoics. They thought that nature was moving according, uh, you know, to, to use a phrase that, uh, one of Spinoza's contemporaries used, uh, as the best of all possible worlds that it's it's everything is happening according to a certain divine plan and that plan is imminent in nature uh and spinoza rejects any such uh divine or any kind of plan in nature nature is just whatever happens to follow from its laws laws that are themselves absolutely necessary there are no other possible worlds for spinoza
0: how about this notion of think least of of death how does that differ from from the Stoic point of view?
1: That's a, gr- that's a great point, because um, some of the Stoics said that um, you can do nothing better than to meditate upon your own mortality. You find that in Epictetus uh, and Seneca, that um, contemplate your death. Remember that you are a mortal creature. Uh, at one point, Epictetus says that you're, you're kind of like putty in the hands of... Of the gods, you are not in control of your fate. Uh, Spinoza goes in the opposite direction. He says that the person who is truly rational, who is truly free, um, is focused on the the joy and the power of living. That is, they they appreciate what they are and the the power that constitutes what it is to be a living individual, and the joy that comes from increases in that power as we become more rational and more virtuous. And a person who is so focused on this joy, the joy of living, simply will not focus on death. It's not in their nature. But there's a, there's sort of a religious side to this as well. Um, I think one of the most pernicious fictions that Spinoza uh, believed, sorry, one of the things that Spinoza believed to be the, the most pernicious fiction is the The idea that there is an afterlife uh, in which your immortal soul will be rewarded or punished. Um, In other words, if you you believe that there is a world to come and that you have this soul that will survive you and be rewarded or punished by the gods, you're going to live a life devoted to trying to earn that divine reward or avoid that divine punishment. And so you're going to do all of those superstitious things that are supposed to give you or guarantee you divine favor. And this is a life of irrational passion. And uh, this is a life of a person who is obsessed with what will happen to them when they die. And Spinoza says, well, when you're dead, you're dead. Nothing happens to you when you die. He goes, you know, goes back to the old Epicurean view that where death is, I am not. And where I am, death is not. So, there's nothing to fear about death because you're not there. You're not going to be suffering anything because you're no longer an existing individual. And this is somewhat like Spinoza's view. Uh, the free and rational person doesn't think about death because there's nothing to think about. They're not going to obsess over some fictional afterlife because it is a fiction. There's nothing there. They're not going to worry about the fate of their immortal soul because there is no such thing as an immortal soul. So, don't think about death. Focus on the rewards that come to the virtuous person in this lifetime what are those rewards well it's peace of mind tranquility happiness satisfaction and the knowledge that the knowledge of oneself that all of these entail
0: when it comes to meditating on on death does it does it seem like in in your work and research of of spinoza that maybe you come to the—is there an important realization of our mortality, and then once you have that realization, it's it's think least of, of death, or is it just not seen in in his eyes as a as a valuable practice?
1: So I think there's an ambiguity there in Spinoza. I think that's a it's a good question. Um, does the free person not think of death because look they know it's there so just get over it or is it just not on their radar at all Um, i'm going to say it's got to be a little bit of both that is the free person the rational person having read spinoza's ethics (laughs) knows exactly what they are and what the future holds for them that is in the long term hopefully the very long term and so if you were to ask this free, rational person, are you mortal? They say, well, of course I'm mortal. I am a finite individual in nature, and eventually um, I will die. Um, but that does not become a point of obsession for them. Having come to terms with that, they can now focus on leading a virtuous and rewarding life.
0: I've got a few virtues or phrases here i'd love to get your thoughts on as we start to to wrap up here when you think of 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 the good life what comes to mind of of humility for spinoza what role
1: um so humility is an ambiguous virtue um if what it means is a kind of belittling of yourself Um, an underestimation of your own self-worth or achievements or values. He thinks it's a bad thing uh, because you should have an accurate and appropriate assessment of who and what you are. Uh, On the other hand, if by humility you mean uh, a humble person is somebody who neither undervalues nor overvalues themselves, then then it's a virtue. Uh, And so the free and rational person Will exhibit a kind of rational humility in that they will know exactly um, where they stand. Uh, they won't. They won't be overconfident. They won't overevaluate themselves. But neither will they underevaluate themselves.
0: How about evil or or suffering?
1: Bad. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so the. This is a a tricky question because at one point Spinoza says if a human being was born free, they would have no conception of evil. Um, I don't, and there's been a lot of ink spilled on what, what he means by that. I think the free person will know what is truly good and what is truly bad. And what is truly good, so nothing, for Spinoza, In nature, nothing is good or bad by itself. There is no such thing as intrinsic evil. Nothing is intrinsically evil or intrinsically bad, but then neither is anything intrinsically good. Whatever is, just is. It's just is. Um, Human beings, each individual human being just is, neither good nor bad. Good or bad are relational terms. Uh, something is good or bad only in relation to how it affects an individual, whether that individual is a human being or a tiger or a tree. So water is good for trees. Water in and of itself is just H2O. It's neither good nor bad, but it's good for trees. Uh, Moreover, there's a lot of debate about whether Spinoza thinks that these categories of good and bad or good and evil are just subjective or imaginative. No, I think they're really objective features of things. Knowledge is objectively good for human beings, just as water is objectively good for trees. Um, And what we should do is strive to pursue those things that, not just that we think are good or feel are good, but that we should strive to pursue those things that truly are good, that truly do benefit our nature, and strive to avoid those things that are harmful to us.
0: How about this idea of hatred and love that he writes about?
1: Hatred is something that the free and rational person will not experience. Um, They will experience sadness. I mean, even the free and rational person can't avoid stubbing their toe on a table or getting a paper cut, or even being harmed, perhaps, by another person. And sadness, Spinoza defines as a decrease in our power brought about by something outside of us. And the way I read Spinoza is that even the most free and rational person will experience some sadness in life, but they will not let that sadness guide them in their thinking or their behavior. They will always be guided by reason. And reason will never bring us to hate another thing because hatred causes us to harm another thing. And the free person does not want to harm others. They want to improve others. In a way, this goes back to Socrates, if I can appeal again to to that figure. Uh, When Socrates was on trial in Athens, he was accused of corrupting his fellow citizens. And part of his defense was, what do you think, I'm an idiot? Why would I corrupt my fellow citizens? I have to live with these people. I don't want to live among corrupted people. Well, likewise, Spinoza's free and rational person doesn't hate others because hatred doesn't help. It doesn't help others become more virtuous and rational themselves. And so Spinoza explicitly says that the free and rational person responds to hate with love. That is, they will respond to somebody who treats them poorly in a way which hopefully will educate them and move them to a condition where they will no longer treat others in such a way.
0: What would you say is the most difficult part for you in your everyday life uh, of being the the free person?
1: (laughs) Well, I'm flattered that you (laughs) think I'm a free person. Um, I'm striving to be a free person, Mm -hmm. but as I think we all are, um, and hopefully in reading philosophy, um, I learn over time, or will learn over time, um, what the best way to achieve it is, um, but the most difficult part of it is trying to find that right path and trying. I think here's another sense in which I think Spinoza got it right. Um, and this is something I've found um, as, as a child of parents, as the parent of children, as a colleague and as a friend, is to try to control my reactions to things and to find the best and most reasonable way to behave and respond. You know, life, at my age, life is, um, you always look back and you think of things that you could have handled better, ways of responding to my parents or to my children or to my spouse or to my friends that probably would have been better ways. And hopefully one accumulates these lessons. This goes back to your original question of wisdom. I think wisdom is the ability to look, to continue to reflect on your life and derive lessons from it that help you be a better person as you move forward. But that's tough.
0: <laughs> You've also got a, a, a new book coming out that I absolutely love the title of, When Bad Thinking Happens to Good People. Um, looking forward to, to reading it. Could you share a little bit about it before we wrap up?
1: Yeah, this that book was inspired by uh, a pandemic. Um, not the COVID pandemic, but a pandemic of uh, I'll call it what it is, a pandemic of stupidity, um, a pandemic of bad thinking, where people are simply uh, falling prey to irrational beliefs, beliefs about stolen elections, about who is and is, should not should be the president. Um, that is not who they should prefer, but who actually is the president. Uh, beliefs about uh, 5G networks causing uh, cases of COVID. Beliefs about vaccinations. Um, and I think that this pandemic of bad thinking, um, it's not fatal, but if we don't do something about it, we're going to find ourselves in a very bad place in terms of climate change, in terms of disease, and in terms of alleviating poverty, and in terms of saving our democracy. I think what we need is a good dose of philosophy and rationality. And when does that one come out, Stephen? It'll be in fine stores in, by August 31st. Go to your local independent bookseller. If
0: someone listening was looking for maybe a simple, small step or idea to kind of embody this idea of the, fr- the free person.
1: I think Spinoza put it well himself. Um, treat other human beings with justice, charity, and generosity. Um, You can do nothing better than that and uh, meditate on that truth and hopefully you'll become habituated to it and it will be second nature.
0: I love it. Great way to wrap up. I encourage everyone to pick up the book, Think Least of Death, and the new book, When Bad Thinking Happens to Good People, in stores, August 31st. This has been a great conversation. Where do you point people interested in learning more about you and your work?
1: Um, They can go to my website. If they go to the University of Wisconsin-Madison, the philosophy department, they'll find a link to my website, and it has um, a list of my books um, and also links to other interesting things to read.
0: We'll link all of this in the show notes. Stephen Nadler, thank you so much for coming on.
1: Thanks so much. I've enjoyed it.
0: Thank you so much for listening. You can get the show notes and links to resources mentioned at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you're interested in learning more, subscribe to The Path. It's our free weekly newsletter. These are short reflections on wisdom for everyday life right to your inbox. And lastly, I urge you to put what you heard into practice. Until next time, be wise and be well.